Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumtum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's episode is called, By Their Billions of Fruits, Ye Shall Know Them. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. Today, we'll be discussing some of the listener comments on the last couple of episodes, episodes 89 and 90. In those two episodes, I was discussing the SEC charges against the LDS Church, the charges against the church for misfiling their reports and obfuscating and hiding the uh, holdings of the institution. For a brief recap for a listener out in the future or a listener that's not familiar with all of this, the essential facts are the LDS Church created shell organizations and filed taxes under these shell companies as if they held the money, the tithe payers' money, and the investments of the church with that tithe payer, with those tithe paying dollars, when in reality it was all held and organized by Ensign Peak Advisory. This all under the direction of church leadership. They got fined by the, by the SEC for like $5 million. So in episodes 89 and 90, I discussed my views on this, compared the actions of a prophet breaking the law from the Old Testament to the modern day. And then in episode 90, covered briefly some of the teachings that the LDS Church gives to new bishops and how they should handle and manage the sacred funds of the church, and then compared that to the way that the church has been handling these funds themselves. In those episodes, some of, some of you listeners out there gave some fantastic comments, some excellent insight into this whole subject, and I want to highlight a number of those. So this episode, I'll be reading some of your comments and then talking about them a little bit. A listener, Daisy May, had this to say, and I thought it was really good. She says, I was glad to see you weigh in on this, Scott. We have modern scriptures that warn not to fear the opinions of other people more than God. I'm pretty sure the senior leaders of the church have read them. Second Nephi 8.7 Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. Doctrine and Covenants 3, 7, and 8 For behold, you should not have feared man more than God, although men said it not the counsels of God and despise his words. Yet you should have been faithful, and he would have extended his arm and supported you against all the fiery darts of the adversary, and he would have been with you in every time of trouble. If the prophet by his actions has demonstrated that he doesn't trust that God will help him deal with the scary consequences of letting people know how much money the church has amassed, we may wonder in what situations he does trust God. My major challenge within the church is the the big bucket issue of lack of truth, transparency, and trust, bi-directional, of the leadership at the top. The harder I look for reasons to stay, the further the leaders push me away. The church finances essay covered by Mormonish last week only widens the chasm with more prevarications and obfuscations of the truth. This was my take on 
the whole subject of the SEC charges as, charges as well. It's not a subject that a believer can brush under the rug very easily. There's there's almost no justification for their behavior. They were caught actively lying to the U.S. government and then fined for their actions. Many of us during general conference, now I didn't watch all of the sessions. I only caught a little bit um, in the background while my wife and some of my kids were watching. But I did catch... I did catch the Saturday afternoon when they were talking about their financial audits, their self audits of the church. So what stood out to me when the, the gentleman is up there from church auditing department talking about the audit, he doesn't say we followed the law of the government in the, in the nation that we reside. He doesn't say that we were financially transparent with everything. He said that everything has been done and administered according to church-approved budgets, accounting practices, and policies. To be clear, he is not saying that they're following some outside standard of auditing practices. He said that we are following what the church tells us to do and auditing the church according to how the church tells us to audit themselves. So thanks for the comment, Daisy. Love what you added to the discussion here. One of my favorite comments that I think I've probably ever received was from The Last Goonie. Uh, on occasion in, in these last few episodes, I said ex-Mormons a couple of times. And uh, The Last Goonie said here, Don't say ex-Mormons. Call us by our full name. Former members of the corporation under the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> I thought that was thought that was pretty great. Wouldn't want any victories for Satan, so so we're no longer ex-Mormons. We are former members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Another great comment on episode 89 was from Tanner. He said, the struggle and sometimes tradition of prophets twisting the truth outwardly while simultaneously maintaining the allegiance of the in-group serves as the galvanization of leadership, particularly in the LDS church. The primary quality of church leadership is loyalty to the institution, maintain, maintaining the good name of the church. This will be done at whatever cost, including lying. They duplicitously pull, pull this maneuver off by reiterating the foundational principle of obedience and continuing revelation. It worked for President Joseph F. Smith. President Joseph F. Smith attempted to walk this fine line during the Reed Smoot hearings. Kathleen Flake expertly outlines how, she, how he did this, despite not having access to his personal journals. He needed to reason around the clear evidence of post-manifesto polygamy, celestial marriage required for exaltation for many decades, and downplay his role as a prophet, the kingdom of God on earth, while simultaneously maintaining his priesthood authority and preventing this schism within the church, all with the overarching arm or eye of the government, press, and Protestant cohorts. He did this inwardly by emphasizing the role of revelation in the church, as well as the restoration of the priesthood. Externally, he said as little as he could, just enough to please his regulators. In the church today, we often hear about continuous change, often attributed to policy. The ongoing restoration has become the norm. Nothing is set in stone unless it needs to be for the moment, i.e. the definition of marriage. 
Uh, he says, the church inwardly in their SEC press release provided vanilla details unrelated to the substance of the charges. The SEC provided the truth related to the matter. Again, the church finds itself self-selecting what they want their membership to know about this event in order to maintain their authority. All of this to maintain the faith of the masses, a true lack of trust in the membership's ability to discern truths and grapple with the reality of fallible leadership and questionable theology. Tanner, you worded this perfectly. Great job likening it to the post-manifesto polygamy. I think there's a great connection here on how the church today is possibly following this same playbook that Joseph F. Smith followed when he was dealing with the government. They say as little as possible about the actual details of the problem. And they know that their members, the followers of the church, are not going to look into it any further than what they say. I had an old friend of mine reconnect after a number of years, and he sent me a message of another mutual friend and their discussion behind the scenes, and their private discussion through message, uh, through Facebook Messenger about the SEC allegations. And, and the way this believer was presenting the problems or talking about the problem was as if it were set up as a stumbling block to a doubter to to separate the wheat from the tares, if you will. And how someone with true faith would, would just trust the church rather than digging too, too deep into what was being said and discussed. There has not been financial transparency within the church for a long time. And that needs to change. Churches need to be taxed. They should be required to have financial transparency. And in order to get any sort of tax exemptions, they should demonstrate what they're doing and how they're helping the communities around them in order to have tax exemptions. The question that I asked at the end of episode 89 was, was why would the knowing the truth about the church tarnish its name? The motive for the LDS church for their obfuscating the funds from the government was because they were worried it would negatively impact the reputation of the church. So I asked, why would knowing the truth about the church's finances make it look bad? Uh, a listener, Perry, said, if the, if the truth tarnishes the name of the church, then the name of the church is already tarnished. Just because they're hiding this does not mean that they haven't done a bad thing. Just because they're hiding the fact that they have misused the tithing funds of the church for the last few decades does not mean that they have not tarnished the name of the church with their behavior. Whether the, whether the public knows about it or not, they have still broken the law. So I'm going to skip ahead to episode 90 uh, called, Does Jesus Really Need $32 Billion? In this episode, I discussed uh, and compared just how big the number $32 billion is. And it's massive. It's hard to consciously grapple just how massive that number is. And it's much bigger by now. So these, the 32 billion, I had a listener ask why I kept saying 32 billion when we know that the church's finances are much higher than that now. I decided to stick with the number from the SEC allegations intentionally because if, if a listener wanted to share it with, um, 
a believing family member, a believing friend, figured it was safer to stick with the number from the allegations rather than speculate on just how much they have today. So that was as of 2018, and that was just the holdings within Ensign Peak Advisory. So I, <laughs> I asked, why does Jesus need this much money? Or why does his church need this much money? And a, a couple of responses that I received from believers were that the church was following the parable of the talents. They were being this good example of taking this gift that the Lord has given them and doubling it. So the parable of the talents comes from Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And on one hand, I can say, yes, I, I, I understand why a believer might say the church has the church is being the good example in the parable of the talents. I don't agree with that, that reading of it. When the church takes the tithing funds, these funds that are the, the sacred funds of the church, if you will, the sacred money that the members give to God for the church to be a steward over, if they're not doing anything with that money, then they are not the good example in the parable of the talents. Quick recap, maybe for a listener that hasn't been to church in a while, the parable of the talents is the, the master gives a couple of his servants some money and they each go out and do a different thing with it. When they come back, the first two, the first two people have been good stewards of their gifts and, and gone out and doubled what, what they were originally given. So they've gone and invested it and brought back more money and the master is happy with them. And then to the last guy he, that had two talents or that had one talent, pardon me, he buried it and he hid this talent in the ground. And then, you know, as the master's there, he gives that talent back to the master. If we're going to say that this is a capitalistic interpretation, then yeah, the church is doing a great job. They're doubling these, the tithing funds. But I don't think the intention was for God's sacred funds not to be used to benefit the world. In my mind, the church is being that slothful, wicked servant. If this money is just in the stock market and not benefiting society, then it is being buried. In fact, the admonition of Jesus in here is pretty close to this. He says, this is verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has, has will be taken away, and cast the, the worthless servant into the outer darkness." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The advice that this master gives to the servant who was burying his talents was, why don't you just put it in the banks because then it will just grow money on its own anyway. The master in this example is saying, I'll reap where I have not sown and I'll gather where no, ske I'll gather where no seed was scattered. The church is literally following the advice that God gave to the slothful servant in the example of the parable of the talents, in the parable of the talents. It's just really ironic to me. There was a listener named Sonny that said, I shared the 1 million seconds versus 1 billion seconds comparison to my family yesterday, 
but it was such a crazy good comparison that really helps put those numbers into perspective. I also rephrased it like this, and I love what she did here. If I were to spend $1 million every 12 days, it would take me 32 years to spend a billion dollars. The church has reached obscene, filthy rich level. To further this example that she gave, which I, I absolutely loved, if we were to spend a million dollars every 12 days to reach the wealth that the church had back in 2018, 2019, when these allegations were um, brought to light to the SEC, it would take 1,014 years to spend $32 billion. That's spending a million dollars every 12 days. It would take about a thousand years spending $1 million every 12 days to spend $32 billion. So Sonny, great job taking what I said and reframing it in a way that is, that is really approachable and uh, expresses just how much money that the church has, obscene levels of wealth. I had a commenter also named Scott reach out and say, in the last couple of weeks, the LDS church has donated a lot of water rights to the state of Utah. In addition, they have cut back water usage on the lawns at Temple Square by up to two thirds. While one can argue that this is long overdue, at the same time, it's the lar largest positive step that the church has taken to show that, that they care about environmental stewardship in my lifetime. This was not something that I'd heard of. I, I don't live in Utah, so I'm not up to date on some of the day-to-day the -day news that's happening in Utah. So thanks for sharing this. Um, I appreciate that. I did look into it afterwards, and it's true. It sounds like the LDS Church, in, in an effort to preserve and save the Great Salt Lake, they donated um, a vast amount of their water rights as a permanent donation to the state of Utah to help uh, preserve the Great Salt Lake. So I think that's fantastic. That's great. There was, if I'm not mistaken, there was an article I read a year ago saying that the Great Salt Lake might not be around in another decade just because of, just based on uh, climate projections for the future. So I think this is a, an amazing step that the church is taking, taking to try and pr preserve this natural landmark that is the Great Salt Lake. I love doing these episodes where I talk about some of my favorite comments from uh, from you guys. I love interacting with you on YouTube and on the uh, the Facebook page and also on the uh, the blog where where I'm posting these episodes on ramiumptumruminations.org. So thanks so much for everyone that has engaged with me throughout this discussion. There's so much more I could say. We could dive deeper into um, this subject quite a bit, but I, th I think I'm going to leave it at this for now. We've got two more comments that I want to cover and then I'll wrap up this episode. Loves Bulldogs said that the church leaders have had their second anointing. So they, according to their own rules, cannot do wrong. If they do, they'll still be exalted with a bit of reprimanding. Right? I <laughs> This was an angle of the, of the subject that I did not even consider until Bulldogs mentioned this, but... If they believe that this second anointing makes them irreproachable and unable to actually sin, I think that might be the only way to adequately, well, <laughs> not adequately in my mind, but this might be the way that a believer could 
justify this, is that they cannot do wrong. They've had their second anointing. And that would mean that the regulations and rules and guidelines given to the local leadership, bishops and stake presidents, they can still be held accountable. But the prophet can't because he's had his second anointing. This last comment that I'm going to read gave me a good laugh because uh, this listener, this listener's comment was exactly what I wanted to end this discussion with. Alaska, the last frontier, said, The church made itself look bad. It's as simple as that. A TBM can apologize for the leader's actions all they want, but a crime is a crime. And hoarding all that wealth, not following the admonition of the Savior to the rich man, shows who their master truly is. By their fruits ye shall know them. My right arm won't be raised to st- my right arm won't be raised to sustain them this weekend, even if I bother to tune into conference. In in the comment that Alaska had said here, I said, "Hey, you're still in my material." That's how I wanted to end this discussion off. And then Alaska said, "Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. Let me introduce. By their fruits you shall know them. Take it away, Scott." <laughs> uh, I thought that was pretty funny. By the fruits you shall know them. This is Matthew 7, 16 to 20 is, is the passage about that. But it says that every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into fire. Should we consider breaking the law, obfuscating these funds, the fruits of the church? And if so, what implication do these fruits, these bad fruits, have on the institution? I have some conference talks that I, I want to talk about, some of the some of the discussions that stood out to me through this most recent general conference. So expect some of that coming in the future. I've got another interview that I'm going to conduct. I've also had some some personal things happening. Um, I might discuss with uh, with the listeners just some of my feelings about the LDS Church and and some other things that have happened in my personal life and how I've been coping with them or not coping with them might be a better way to <laughs> to put it. Anyway, thanks so much out there for, for sticking around and listening. Thanks so much for commenting. I, I really enjoy the back and forth that I've had with so many of you. Wherever you find yourself out there, just finished a drive, parked at your destination, but sitting in the car, finishing up a podcast episode, or just trying to muster up the courage to actually get out there and go be an adult. I hope that you have an excellent day.